0: The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Teodora. mai, hoki Fold, mihi My guest today is Guyon Espina, who is an investigative journalist at RNZ, uh, also very often uh, a, a co-host of Morning Report, which is a show that he hosted for some years. Uh, and and I always feel like the product is, is a little bit more electric when when he's around it. He's on the fold this week because of a series that he has just completed called Mate, Comrade, Brother, which are all sort of verbatim quotes from communications between lobbyists and ministerial advisors or, or people in government agencies. And you know it's been a series which as soon as it was announced as soon as the the first reporting came out i was like this is fantastic let's classic guy on to kind of go really deep into a an issue around the relationship between uh, government and and the sort of population at large where you know, I think and he makes the case that the public interest is is not being served even though we are sort of paying for all this information or 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 all these interactions to occur. Uh and yeah, you know, I need to be upfront. Guy Guy's one of my favorite journalists in this country. I followed his career since you know, certainly since he was the political editor of the Sunday Star Times, I, I remember reading his columns and thinking, this is this is a really different tone and, uh, and approach to the subject of political commentary uh, he went from there to TVNZ, uh was, was political editor hosted q a um moved to to three which oftentimes the, the 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 direction of traffic can feel like it goes from three to TVNZ. And it's interesting that he went the other way um, did a show called The Vote, which I, you know, is probably just a footnote to his career, really, but one that I really loved, and we talk about that. Uh, and then ultimately has moved to RNZ, where he's still now, firstly hosting Morning Report, and then moving into this. You know, he was one of the first people to go into these kind of more at large roles that you now see, Paddy Gower, and uh, you know, we've got our own in a way, and and Toby Mannhire, John Campbell's doing a similar thing at TVNZ, but you know the. That's the beauty of those kind of having a a really senior journalist who's got a bit more time on on their hands. So he's basically every so often he will just kind of parachute in with a new series, a new project. You know, he's made these documentaries about um, alcohol and, and drugs and proof and wasted. Um he did the ninth floor, which we discuss in, in depth, uh interviews with former prime ministers. Basically he's I think a very industrious um and you know original journalist and, and uh you know it's just been was a real privilege to sit down with him for an hour and have him really explore, you know, his career, the the different aspects of the the media organizations that he's worked for and and how, how all this stuff is, is, has evolved and is evolving. So, yeah, there, there is some merger chat in there. I, I make no apologies for that, to, to give a politician's answer. Uh, so, yeah, this is a good one. This is Guyan Espina, an investigative journalist at RNZ on The Fold. Te <laughs> Guy and uh and thank you so much for coming on The Fold this week. Kia ora. So I want to start with with the reporting that you've been doing this week. Make Conrad Brother is the, the sort of series uh, overarching name. Um, what, 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 is, what is the name in reference to and, and what is the, the sort of function? What are you trying to convey with this series?
1: Well, the name is from the tone and some direct quotes from the text messages and signal messages and emails. Uh, We filed more than 70 OAA requests to get this material and got thousands of communications. One of the things that strikes you as you go through it is the intimacy, the relationships that these lobbyists have particularly with the ministerial advisers. And I find this really interesting because what they're doing is they're targeting advisers and ministerial officers. Remember, those people don't have any pecuniary interest register. You, you're never going to find out uh, what their relationships are. And they're uh, inviting them out for drinks and dinner and getting really close to them and then getting information out of them, um, often for quite significant policy and in a way that is utterly transparent, we have no idea that that's going on. And we have no idea who the client lists are for most of these lobbying firms, because there's there's no regulation around it in New Zealand. So the title came from the uh, direct quotes, you know, hey, mate, hey, comrade, do you want to catch up for a beer and talk about gambling? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's stuff that I haven't seen before. We've known that, that that this lobbying industry is quite strong and has been growing, but we very rarely get a glimpse. And to be honest, and to you know, to acknowledge its own shortcomings, this is still just a glimpse because we don't know what happened at those meetings. Much of the material is redacted, but it's uh, more than certainly more than I've seen about how this industry operates.
0: So, I mean, what do you think the motive is for the? Look, you understand why the the corporation I mean you, you're actually looking at it quite narrowly in some respects r- largely through the lens of of what government is, is spending because that's what's easily accessible through the OIA. the probably the much bigger partners are corporate affairs you understand what their motives are and some of them are actually fully legitimate like legislation impacts them and so on but on the ministerial advisor side, it's it's somewhat mysterious about why beyond, you know, a free meal and a beer is nice, but it's not so nice that you'd kind of do something that was contra the public interest, you'd, you'd think. well, From your reading of these reams of communications, is it the fact of the relationships or is there something else that do you think is driving the their willingness to engage uh, with, with the, this industry? It's a good question. I, I think um, part of it is just that these...
1: Lobbyists are so much part of the ecosystem of Parliament. And I worked there for 15 years in in the Parliamentary Press Gallery and somewhat, to my shame, never did these kinds of stories on this industry. And I I think that that is... It's a bit like that, you know, fish and water parable. The fish doesn't realise it's swimming in water. These are these guys are part of the ecosystem. They're people you know, people you often like, people who used to be journalists. And this revolving door that we talk about, and I'm sure we'll probably talk a bit more about this, it, it spins around so fast that these people are coming and going from uh, these kinds of roles, from government to lobbying, sometimes back again, that they're just seen as uh, as another player in this scheme. And sometimes they'll be... What you also find is there's trades that are going on. They're not explicit, but they're like... I, I, lobbyists will take a minister say hey I've got something for you. Now I don't know what that was because the text runs dry or it's been redacted. I've seen evidence that they've been helping them with parliamentary questions um, which I find pretty interesting too um, again those are heavily redacted. So there's a, there's a there's an information sharing thing going on here. They're part of part of the e- ecosystem. I can get this for you. I'll give you a heads up on that. And, and so yeah I don't think it's I've got no evidence that there's corrupt that there's corruption that they're being paid off or anything silly like that. And I agree with your assessment about the beer or the free meal, but um, I think that they're seen as traders in the scheme.
0: Right. I mean, the the the, the story you ran on Tuesday about uh, Andrew Curtin, who you know was was lobbying for Asahi and Lion, uh, you know on on things like the container recycling scheme uh and and i assume ha- had an opinion on the sponsorship alcohol sponsorship of sports and moved into government the the following day um you know to become chief of staff of the new prime minister while and and within a couple of weeks those policies were were scrapped seems seems like something that should you know that c- should cause any government particularly like a a labor government which had until recently really positioned those as kind of moral. Uh, issues, whether it's climate change or you know the, the the kind of broader health of society, and and yet they were there. There doesn't seem to have been, you know, I've listened to to Kim's extraordinary interview. I thought with with Hopkins this week, you you just couldn't seem to kind of conjure a sense of, you know, not necessarily even shame, but any kind of introspection or disquiet about it.
1: I think. They are banking on the idea that this is an issue that won't touch the general public. That, that it's all about the cost of living and that people in you know, the shopping malls of New Zealand aren't going to care about lobbyists and, and cool off periods and, and that sort of thing. And they're probably right to a degree that it's, it might not be an issue that has um, it, it excites popular attention. But I think it should. And I think that this is a major gap in our democracy. Um, and y- you know, we have a proud democracy and a very strong one. I think this is a major gap. And it, it's not just an opinion, When you look at the OECD report into lobbying, which was done in 2021, we're out of 41 countries. We're one of nine that has no revolving door policy at all. You can go straight from government to lobbying or the other way around. We're utterly unregulated. And all the countries that we compare ourselves to in terms of strong developed democracies have regulated rules for lobbying. We don't even define what it is. We don't know who the clients are. You've now got a chief of staff for the prime minister who's one day cold from a lobbying firm who are his clients well if you want to file 70 OAAs, you might be able to find out a few of them that's what we did but who are they
0: it's quite extraordinary right because i mean one of the things that i noticed was that uh, draper cormac which is another of the the firms involved you know farmac who you know given the scale of them and the importance of the work they do must be one of their biggest uh, clients, and yet their name was not on their their, their website, which is sort of you know, part of the function of it, is to crow about who who you've got on the books. So you know, you've got to assume that that's because Farmac doesn't want to be there, or or you know maybe the firm doesn't want them. But yeah, you know, the you, you'd think it would just be an absolute precondition of engagement if you're if you are the a, a government entity or agency to say we should. You know, the public should should know who, who we're engaging and why. And yet it seems like the reverse. The private sector, you know, because a lot of those entities were, was was more comfortable with people knowing who was whose services they were procuring than the public. I mean, which brings brings a kind of a, a bigger point, maybe you speak to that narrowly, but also the broader one of do you believe that, you know, having really poured over the sum, you've got to shrink it a bit to report it in some respects, that the public interest was broadly served by these engagements?
1: Well, I think that that is the central question. And so that's why I looked at one specific story on public agencies using these kinds of services. What public interest is served by Pharmac using a firm like this? I mean, I can really understand Pharmac needing communication staff, quite a few of them, to explain how some particular drug might impact on a on um, a various sector group or, or, or why it made a particular decision because these are complex things with massive stakes and big money at stake. But does that include getting the CEO to stage an exit from a select committee to, to avoid the media? Does, does that include trying to get Sarah Fit into women's magazines, for example? I mean, this seems more about brand p- protection for CEOs or, or chairs or senior executive staff. That is not serving the public interest at all. I don't even think it's serving Pharmax interest as an ongoing Proud, independent entity which relies on objectivity and science. How is that doing that? that it's, that's it's, it's protecting about self. Sarah yeah. next job. It's, it's protecting her brand. Yeah. and they're using our money to do that. So I, I think that that's highly questionable. The same with Transpower. It's a monopoly S O E for God's sake, running the national grid. Why are they gathering political intelligence on MPs and trying to find out where their vulnerabilities and and w- whether they failed in medical school or not? I mean, they might not be enormous sums, but it's is that really in the public interest to be doing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, given you know, Transpower has, has nine communication staff, I do think it's important to note, and I really believe this, that the communications environment that we operate in now is vastly different from the one that, you know, existed when you or I first entered journalism. But fundamentally, like, I think that there is this kind of mission creep of communications more broadly into to the point where it sort of can feel like it's eating the world, like... The it sort of swims downstream into organisations, so that every decision, and you know, we talked earlier off, off air about the way that no surprises and uh, uh, that policy interacts with this, or um, but that it is triangulated through the through the lens of communications, which I think can actually be profoundly corrosive. I mean, you've been in. The gallery you've been in, in politics and journalism for, for you know three decades now is there something that you have observed over the course of your career has evolved over time that the sort of that that interaction between communications uh, and and the state itself oh
1: massively and i think you've hit on a couple of key points there i came into the press gallery in 1998 and and I remember back in those days when I was working for the Evening Post, you'd ring someone in, a, in an outfit called CC Mao, which was a branch of Treasury, which looked after SOEs, and I don't think that they divided up like that anymore. But I remember ringing a guy from um, Treasury, effectively, and asking him about Radio New Zealand's future. I was reporting about it at the time, and he gave me this interview. It was sort of a, an official. We did a story on it, which was quite controversial at the time. But, you know, in those days you could ring... You could ring pe- people who are experts in their area who would give interviews, and and in the early Helen Clark years, in the early two thousands, they developed the no surprises rule, which is quite insidious, and I think has had a major impact on this because it, it's I can understand if. Look, if it's, if it's going to be a two-hoy raids from the police, you could imagine you would 24 hours, six hours heads up about this massive thing that was going to happen. Um, I get that on major issues, but it hasn't become a no-surprises rule. It's become a no-embarrassment rule. And so every OAA goes back to the minister's office to see whether there's anything um, that's embarrassing to the minister. And our public service—that's not their role. You know, their role isn't. Again, we talked about brand management, of CEOs. This is brand management. Of politicians, there's no public interest there, and I think that, that allows for massive mission creep um, for for these lobbying firms and and PR agencies, government relations firms, whatever you want to call them, um, to, to go in and basically try to uh, avoid any embarrassment or political fallout for for ministers.
0: Let's talk a bit more about no surprises, because I do agree that it it. it does feel like it is in conflict with uh, the sort of mission and function, and and ultimately, the the you know part of the reason you're able to levy taxes and impose laws and put people in prison is because of the relationship between you know the the, the citizenry and th- those who sort of govern and rule them, and when you know no surprises doesn't seem to sit always sit particularly easily with that kind of implied compact, you know it. Can you just talk talk a bit more about what no surprises really is? It's because it's not a, a law, right? It's it's a vibe in some respects.
1: Yeah, and there are references to it in, in, in the cabinet manual, but a vibe is probably not a bad way to put it. It's a it's a it's a convention. Um, there was a big argument, wasn't there, about whether tipping off ministers to Winston Peters' superannuation overpayment should have fell under that policy, and and that went right through the court. So there's. You know, there is increasing analysis of this. But effectively, in simple terms, it just means I don't want to read about this first on the spin-off or uh, on RNZ or stuff. I want you to tell me first, and if you do, I might be able to find a way not to make it public. And that's not healthy.
0: Do do, do you have any confidence in change? Like, has has any party reacted to this in a way where you go, well, the you know, obviously... Labour, currently in government, um, are not, I assume, not loving it. But uh, do do you have a sense that there might be enough of a groundswell that might get us some laws that would bring us closer to the median of the OECD potentially?
1: I can see that the door is open to crack. It's open to jar, if you like, which is good. Uh, Chris Hipkins is saying he won't rule out changes to lobbying, which isn't amazing, but to to lobbying regulation. And, And National's probably a little more eager, as you could imagine, in opposition, and they have been very critical of the revolving door speed and the lack of any regulation around that so there seems to be some appetite there the last attempt was in 2012 Sue Kedgley had a bill and then it was taken over by Holly Walker from the Green Party uh, the Green Party aren't exempt from this too, you might remember Tori Farno. she was the Chief of Staff for the Green Party, she resigned from that job as the Chief of Staff, went to Capital Government Relations Neil Jones's firm um, she worked with them right up until the day she was elected Mayor
0: right? It's pretty extraordinary. Uh, right, right up until
1: the day she was elected mayor. So, so you so, can imagine the she's the out there
0: campaigning. Yeah. While also, you know, performing or, or you know, working on on behalf of clients. Who knew that polling was said that she was most likely next mayor, mayor of Wellington.
1: Yeah, and 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 all that. And again, all of the stuff comes back to transparency. It, there'd be no real problem if there was just a register and naming the people would go a long, long way. I mean, one of the ironies to me is that because some of these New Zealand companies are big enough, they have lobbyists in Australia, right? So Air New Zealand has lobbyists working for them in Australia. Now, I can go online, look right now, I type in Air New Zealand to the um, lobbying register in Australia, run by the uh, Attorney-General's uh, office, and it comes up with a firm called Diplomacy, and there's a couple of names, I can't remember the names of these guys, who work for Air New Zealand as lobbyists in Australia. So I know them, but I've got no idea who lobbies for them in New Zealand. I mean, you might know, some someone might know, might have told so-and-so, but there's no public register of it. And this doubles down because many of these people are commentators and high profile commentators in our media landscape massively high profile commentators and you know again if you if you knew who they were working for then I'm not saying they shouldn't be commentators I just think that if the public knew who they were working for or you could find out who they were working for I think you'd be able to make a better judgment about how to take what they were saying. So it, it all comes back to transparency.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was going to ask you about the commentators then because, you know, people like Neil Jones, Matthew Huden has done this work. I mean, these are some of the most prominent. They're really good commentators, you know. So so like they, they and they, as you, in some respects, you would expect given the degree, you know, the jobs they've worked in and the, the degree of access and so on. But, and, and honestly, I, you know, Maybe I'm naive. I don't necessarily think that they are aggressively pushing for a, a particular client's agenda in their commentary, but there is just something that's kind of, you know, it, it surprises you because they, they are ubiquitous. Like, we all use them in ver- various capacities, and 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 yet, the, yeah, there is something that is quite unsettling. Well, there, are, there,
1: there is. And look, you know, let's be honest, these, these guys are are very good at it. They have expert knowledge. A lot of them are, are, are very good people and I tend to agree with you that they most likely do have integrity in, in, in that um, respect. But that's not enough. You know, there's the old saying, yeah, you know, trust... But then verify, and we need to be able to do that. Is it good enough to say, "Oh yeah, well he's a good guy, so it's
0: probably fine"? It's a very New Zealand. It's kind a very of New Zealand, and this
1: whole story is very as a very New Zealand way of looking at things. Oh well, you know, yeah, no, he's a good guy. I used to, I used to work with him. Mm. Um, there's no problem here. Oh, lobbying, and their mind goes immediately to Washington and doesn't think of Wellington at all. Oh, you go look at the U.S. lobbying law, and it's incredibly robust and rigorous. They have transparency. They have uh, um, laws. Uh, if you breach the code of conduct and breach the law for lobbying in the US, you can get locked up. They have revolving door policies, they have disclosure. Canada has a commissioner for lobbying. All of these OECD countries have this call-off period and, and, um, and register so you know who these people are working for. In New Zealand, there's, there's no regulation at all. I mean, real estate agents, for God's sake, ha- have to be disclosed. Lawyers have a register where you can find who's been struck off from some suburban law firm. Yet these people are right at the heart of decision making, lobbying on massive issues with huge money at stake, and yet we've got no regulation at all. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really seem that there's a strong case to defend that.
0: The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver
1: investment?
0: I do want to kind of uh, move into other aspects of your career as well. I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, your, your sort of... Because I first encountered your work as a print journalist and, um, you know, I wondered what sort of what, what drew you into to print and then what moved you away from it.
1: Yeah, so I spent the first 10 years of my journalism career as a print newspaper journalist... Uh, for various uh, little publications until um, the evening post my first real daily job in journalism and then into the gallery for them in the late 90s and um, I moved from there to the Sunday Star Times and spent a stint as political editor there um, before Mark Sainsbury dragged me into television Um, at a time in my life where things had changed it was uh, uh, you know I'd had personal change in my life and also was thinking about the future of newspapers and thought I'd give this a crack so He dragged me into television and I spent, you know, 10 years there, um, largely for TVNZ in the political realm, but then on to TV3 in my later years of that um, and then into radio. So, yeah, I've... um if you're going to spend an entire career in journalism and storytelling, which I intend to do, I made a decision a few years ago that I wouldn't be a manager—not a good manager. Um, I'm a content guy. I'm a I'm a storyteller, and that's what I'm going to do until I'm dragged out in a box. So, if you're going to do that, um, there's a long time you want to play in the different um, codes. If it use a sporting analogy, I suppose, don't you? And you know, so you want to do interviewing, and you want to do documentary making, and you want to do podcasts, and you want to write. Um, you want to keep yourself interested and give yourself new challenges. And I put a book out this year, I hadn't done that really before. Um, so what, what what what's next? And how how do I keep this interesting? And how do I keep not reinventing myself, but um, Something close to that.
0: It's interesting because, like, I remember when you were political editor of the Sunday Star Times and and reading your analysis, and it had this. It, it felt like you introduced a bit of a new style to to the political analysis thing. What to me, it said there was this kind of coolly rational quality to it, which I really enjoyed and felt like it was a, a bit of a a change from the the more established style of the the kind of probably an older generation of political editors. What, what, what sort of informed the way that you approached being in the gallery? Because there, there is a sort of a, there's a, a lot of different ways that you can approach it. And you know, we've got, I think, a fantastic gallery at the moment. Um, and you can move from anything from like TV3 has a particular kind of energy to the way it approaches things. Um, and I, but I also love the way that, like, say, like a, a Henry Cook or, or a Thomas Coglin, that they they seem to be almost heirs of yours, and that sort of, well, here is how this thing, here is a way of understanding this thing, and that is that is quite, it's a little bit more dispassionate, which I think actually benefits the material. So yeah, do you want to just talk about that sort of whole stylistic tonal piece?
1: Yeah, and I think that those names you mentioned. Um, I read, I read those people and think, wow, this is great, and this is so good to see people coming through doing that. Um, yeah, I suppose when you were writing for the Sunday Star Times back in, in those days, you were expecting and relying on people spending a, a, a quite a bit of time to read this thousand-plus word column that you that you'd wrote, and without polarizing people i think we and not those names you've mentioned it, because there are many good people good people but we both here in New Zealand and overseas have have tended to go down this you know uh, f- ferment the outrage sort of style where you, you're wanting to, uh, to emote and to drive sort of a polarisation and I, I don't think that that's been terribly healthy. Uh, I think you get so much more out of it when you do get someone unpacking how something actually works and actually making people think and, and actually relying on the writing. I mean try to Tried to do that style where you actually are putting a lot of care into into the writing itself and, and the allusions that you're making and those sorts of things, and so yeah, I've 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 kept some of those clippings and 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 looked back and it does look a little bit little old fashioned now, but um, yeah, it is it's nice to see others coming through with them, um, at least you know I guess picking up the baton in some respects.
0: So you worked at TVNZ through probably its last great. Apex in terms of true the true power of the state broadcaster at a time when it had far less competition for attention. You know, what what are your kind of memories of of that era? Uh, and and I, I guess when I'm, I'm thinking about the sort of the true scale impact of, of a story that you know that could be broken or or, or picked up and run with by, by an organisation in that era versus now when you know, there are can be big stories that, that people who can still be paying a lot of attention to media but can be completely oblivious to because of the fact that everyone has a truly unique um, media diet nowadays.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good point. Um, I, I remember when I came over to te- television for TV1 in the press gallery, the, the attention that the politicians played paid especially to TV One was frightening because their view, their voters all watched TV One. TV Three used to beat us quite a lot on politics. You know, Duncan Garner was a formidable opponent and often they'd, they'd kick her ass. But um, it was what the politicians wanted to know what was on TV One. And you would literally feel the world blowing up when when you did something controversial on TV One. I, a story that, that came to mind when you were saying that and asking me that question was Michael Cullen, who had an utter tirade at me uh, during an interview, or even a set-up to an interview. It was quite controversial that we played it, and I'm not even sure, in hindsight, that we did the right thing. But we aired this tantrum that he had about tax cuts. When and you say
0: the set-up, you mean, so this is- The preamble, you were rolling, but he didn't necessarily know that it was going to be for broadcast. So carry on.
1: We won a BSA on it, but in hindsight, I don't know. It was a bit 50-50, I think. Um, But anyway, we ran it, and um, Mike Jaspers, who's one of the lobbyists now, I still remember, you know, absolute inferno um, down the line um, at this thing as it went to air. And I was I was put into Siberia by that Labour government for many months after that. They would leak stories that we'd communicated with them onto a, a, a competition. They would um, not talk to you in the lifts. And I still remember Parikura Horomea saying to me in the, in, in the lift, he said, I still love you. I still love you, Guy, and it re- I still remember that because because it was it was really we were locked out because we'd blown them up, and um, a- a- and it was damaging. This was their number two guy, and we'd we'd taken out their number two. Like he he'd utterly made uh, a, a fool of himself, and I have massive respect for for, for for the late Sir Michael Cullen, but he had had gone um, quite uh, quite um, you know porangi on this thing, and he'd just. Um, really blown up his reputation but but the the impact of a big story broken on TV One was huge and I remember the same with um, Bill English's housing allowance in the early days of the key government, this would be circa t- uh, 2009, the Herald had done a lot of work on the story too but Bill English was claiming something close to 50 grand for a housing allowance and did he live in Dipton or did he live in Wellington and th- this was a big deal in the GFC because it was austerity measures coming in and the guy, I remember him ringing me up on the phone effing and blinding literally effing and blinding because we'd run the story on TV1 and that was the impact that it had Um, so it was high stakes
0: It's interesting right because I I did a story uh, last year about Corngate um, which was you know Part of me, when you were talking about no surprise before, was was wondering about the extent to which it might even be traceable to to a moment like that. But you know, John Campbell described you know when I was reporting that a very similar situation in which, out the back of it, he felt like he and and to a lesser extent three were basically just frozen out by by Clark because he'd sort of broken one of these unwritten rules of engagement uh, between the organisations.
1: Absolutely. Uh, cool. she, she called him a, a little creep, didn't she, from memory? But, but, the, the, I, I bet the sports media have a similar issue with the All Blacks, and I don't know because I've never been a sports reporter and no one would read my sports reporting if I was. But um, if I had my time again, and, and this really does signal back to the lobbying thing too, I, I think I would be more aggressively independent, you know, um, what well, I'd like to think I would be. And access journalism, as they call it, is never worth it. You know, I, I really do subscribe to that theory that news is something that someone somewhere does not want you to know, and all the rest is advertising. And And I think that, that it, there's a sort of philosophy that you need to carry into to that job to serve the public well. Because if you're relying on... Um, getting the tips and getting the next heads up on a story that's not a yarn that's not something you're going to look back with pride because you you got the next ambassador to London six hours before your boss will be happy say, that's the way the circle works public and listening to this may not know that that that's you know so you're a gallery journalist and your good mate and the advisor as an advisor in the office tells you oh yeah so and so is going to be the next um, ambassador to London and you get the story first and so you know and it's Exclusive and your boss is happy and you're happy, but what have you really done? So, and and when you do a story like Corngate or or you blow up Michael Cullen on tax or whatever, then and they lock you out. Well, they're locking you out because because you told someone something they didn't want you to know. Um, so that whole relationship stuff is it's difficult to navigate as a gallery journalist and I've quite enjoyed doing things like this lobbying series and, and the New Zealand First Foundation and stuff like that from Auckland uh, where you're not in there and sometimes some of that, um, la- you know, that um, distance can actually be quite empowering
0: Have you just speak, just quickly return to that lobbying story you know, the, obviously the lobbyists won't have liked being um, front and centre but have you had any kind of Blowback in a similar yeah. style.
1: Yeah, I have. Uh, well, I have, and in fact, a lot of them are ringing me now and saying, "Oh, you're looking in the wrong place. So and so is far more powerful than we are." <laughs> and in some cases, they're actually right.
0: Would you, would you say um, you're being lobbied?
1: Well, well, pr- pretty much. And and the lo- it was the lobbyists killed the uh, the previous bill. But they are right in in respect of um, saying that the public law um, category of this is is an area where they have a lot of power, and I haven't looked at that. At, but um, you know
0: I'm quite keen to. So you you moved from TVNZ to well you had a brief stint at three. I actually want to talk about um, one of the shows you did there because I, I, I still m- miss it um, but but from there you went to RNZ so you, you've had long relationships with and key roles at uh, to the two state owned media organisations or two of the state owned media organisations, the two most prominent. Were you? I'm going to ask you about the merger. Did you? Did you have a position on it? And you know what? Do what do you sort of make of the the fundamental driver of it? That is basically that those organisations, just like a lot of the legacy media, aren't meeting the needs of uh, younger or more diverse New Zealand as well.
1: Yeah, two two positions, I suppose. Um, from a personal perspective, about me, I wanted and was excited about it because I wanted to get my hands on the kit. You know, I mean, I love making television. We've made some documentaries, uh, Proof and then Wasted, which screened on primetime. We're very proud of them. We made them, uh, just two of us, with literally a few thousand dollars. I mean, you know, on extraordinary, uh, you know, the smell of a smell of a smell of an oily rag. We really did. Um, And so I was really looking forward to getting in and using those uh, studios and working with some of the great people and the great equipment at TVNZ. And I also love interviewing, and I love television interviewing, it's different Um, and you know I did Q&A for many years and um, I'd love to come back to do more of that stuff so I was excited about that so that's my personal position in terms of a public policy position i could never quite work out why they felt that this was the answer to the problem that they had perceived i mean as good as they could get was well we're facing an information democracy disinformation crisis and a supercharged uh, merged uh, media company may have the ballast and the robustness to get us through that but I would have thought that both of those things could have been done by strengthening the individual entities rather than merging them together. I mean, in really shorthand terms, and this will probably upset my employer and the other guys as well, RNZ's probably a little bit too worthy and doesn't quite meet the needs of these diverse audiences. TVNZ probably a little bit too um, shallow at times and doesn't do quite enough on the on that um uh, you you know on on the journalism culture or you you know having having possibly enough uh, quality local stuff so you could you could have tweaked either of them and we may well see that without merging them together I mean if you've got deficiencies in two people have they been solved by getting them married haven't seen that necessarily being a solution and I don't know that it really was and in the end it fell apart because they couldn't argue for it because they didn't really know why they wanted to do it and and th- th- that that was the the hill that it tied on wasn't it? it
0: was I mean one, one of the things that I think makes this more difficult uh, you know is that to to truly do a digital transformation of, of any organisation, let alone a media organisation, you have you, you can't keep doing everything you used to do and like doing, and do everything else. There is at a certain point you have to make hard decisions about the things that you pre- previously had done, much as you love them, that they might have to that resource might need to be put somewhere else. The thing that I think you know RNZ's, you know, which I probably agree with your um, assessment of of your own employer, which I think you're brave <laughs> brave to make. Um, you know, is that it? Actually, is hamstrung in its ability to to make those kind of moves because of the the politics of it, and you saw that most acutely around the RNZ concert mm. debacle. You know, is what what do do you feel like the organisation has a mismatch between it's it's what it would like to do and what it is politically able to do, or, or could it try harder? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, we're going to see some interesting times ahead because the government is committed to to spending some more money on RNZ and it'll be fascinating to see how that is used because there are a lot of things like they want to do that they simply can't do. And that goes right from the technology of the place and the quality of the equipment uh, through to programming and audiences that aren't as well served as we would like uh, to, to 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 do but um yeah it's 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 very difficult isn't it for media organisations because uh, they look at their audience and often they are older people i mean even people are, are older than 50 and and they like oh we want to attract the younger browner ones and look look you know we we need to do this sort of stuff um and but but if if that is done at the expense of cu- cutting off your your existing existing audience then th- that that's problematic um so yeah i mean my own view and look you know we're straying into management territory which i told you earlier <laughs> if you if you keep that bit in that i'm not a manager i don't have to make those decisions and it's probably a good thing that i don't but w- what i would say more broadly on that is <sighs> And again, it's a bit like politics. If you're driven by polls or numbers, you tend to make decisions that aren't authentic. And I reckon that if you make good, authentic stuff and you make cool stuff, then people are going to get into it, even younger people. I mean, I say young people, I've got mates whose teenagers are listening to true crime podcasts, and it's cool, you know, and they're 16 or 17. So you you know, don't think that younger people, for example, will only get it if you're going to do it has to be a hip-hop style doco or whatever. It doesn't have to be. Like, you can engage people in in cool stuff. I bet there are young people who are into the lobbying series because they're interested in lobbying. They've seen Thank You For Smoking or whatever. They're, They're into it. How how are we going to engage this audience? It doesn't have to be by, you know, um, by talking down to them. I think it's just being authentic and trying to trying to drive cool stuff. Um, but as I say, this is probably a, a good example of why no one's um, asked me to be the chief executive.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Also, well, let's let's move back to content because there are a couple of you know, Guy on Espina joints, if you you will, if that's not too embarrassing of a way to put it, um, that I want to just end by talking about, because they were, they're both very different, but seem to me just quite original approaches to very different um, sort of issues. The the first is The Vote, which, uh, you know, I'd be curious about your role in that, your memories of it. So this was a show for tv3 it was you and Duncan Garner and it was like very explicitly let's try and make this about issues but make it kind of pop and in prime time and it felt to me and I've there are a number of like vote heads (laughs) that that I know who who have really fond memories of that show talk about its its genesis and why you think it didn't get to kind of fly on the way it might have
1: I'd love to because I've got fond memories of that too Duncan Garner and I bodged that show up on the back of a napkin in Galbraith's pub and came up with the idea ourselves. I remember talking to Bailey Mackey about it, and he was horrified that we hadn't done some legal thing with the IP or whatever, because that's where his mind went to. He's a very very (laughs) successful, commercial guy. Um, And we, and and Duncan and I are not. We're journos. um, But we came up with the the idea, and exactly like you say, so we had this idea where you would have to um, come up with, you'd have a moot, you'd have an argument, you know, is New Zealand a racist country was one of our things, well before Taika created his controversy with it. And you'd have two different teams and you'd cross-examine them. So it was part courtroom drama, part sort of debate debating society and then you'd have, you know, Bob Jones and Lila Hare and, and these people. And then and you'd have it in front of a live audience and then the last ten or fifteen minutes of the, stu- the show was done and live from Flower Street where you'd have the votes coming in on on, on Twitter and the apps and stuff. So this was like 2012? It was
0: early. Yeah. For for a yeah. show of this nature. And so
1: it was all, so it was a bit of everything. Um and, and quite quite unique. Now it got canned on numbers that they would kill for today. Utterly. You know, these were pretty good numbers. I remember we used to come on after Ice Road Truckers. <laughs> and you would take, take a bit of a dip. <laughs> He's good leading. and And, and it would take a bit of a dip. But um, we did we did pretty well for what, on the face of it, is a worthy thing, right? But it was primetime TV on commercial television. And the numbers were pretty good. And I'm still a bit pissed off at TV3 for, for, for canning it because New Zealand On Air were paying for it, largely paying for it as well. Um, and I think that format could have been, you know, could could have been pretty good, especially you know in election years and stuff. So yeah, it was um, it, it was a really cool idea, and it was full on to do. Gosh, it was um, probably the hardest TV I'd ever done because you had to do it in front of a live audience, uh, in in front of an audience of real humans, and um, and then switch over to the studio to when the votes came in. But um,
0: yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it, it, it's one of those things where the the you can imagine. Had the merger go go gone ahead, it, it's got clear public interest, but it is seeking to do what what can be done in a very dry, off way away from peak style. Something that will will connect with an audience that has previously been watching Ice Road Truckers, and that's the thing where I was like, this is gorgeous like this is what what we should all be shooting for so no agree that it's a shame now the the other the other one to talk about totally different much more worthy in some respects but I absolutely devoured it was was the ninth floor and again like that that felt like something that you were deeply passionate about a really kind of singular um, piece of work and framing Um, but yeah I just wondered if you could could talk about where that came from and also about whether there has been any discussion about because there is now a few different former uh, Prime Ministers, all of whom would, would be fascinating to, to join that series. Yeah, what's what's? what's Utterly. Your...
1: Um, firstly, it was Tim Watkins' idea, who, who I worked on it with, and he he looked at this thing, there was a book which I've still got on my shelf at home, called The President's Club, which I didn't know about. It was a, is a sort of a, a club that US, former US presidents um, meet and talk and support each other, just sort of like a AA for former presidents, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... He got the idea from 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 there, and and Carol Hirschfeld, who was head of news at TVNZ at, uh, at RNZ at the time, said, "Oh, why don't you take a couple of weeks off from Morning Report and, and and do a podcast?" And I was looking around, I was saying, "Oh, I do want an immigration policy or something." And, and then we was talking to Tim, and he said, no, why, why don't we do this?" And 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 so I thought, "Yeah, great," and we got got into it and, and absolutely loved it. And, and just to just to in, intersect with a couple of things we've already talked about, that sh- I expected that to be of interest to. Uh, a few people in sort of libraries and um, a few you know political heads the the reaction to that was extraordinary I remember getting on um, a bus on Dominion Road and being hit up by people in the street by young people slouching along with backpacks saying bro watch the ninth floor it was so cool and I thought wow that is just and and that's the sort of feedback as a journalist you absolutely love because you know you've touched you know you've touched people um, and the, the idea that they were really into the fact, because they didn't know. They are like, oh, so you weren't allowed to shop on a Saturday in New Zealand. It's like, nee, nah, nah, this is, this is what happened. Or, you know, the sort of stuff that, uh, it, just reintroducing people to some of the history and, and trying to give them a map to where we got now, because we're really poor at doing this in New Zealand, um, and so it was, it was really cool to see people, ordinary people, engage
0: with it. I mean, I think also, by bundling everyone or everyone you could get the you sort of realized I I think it, it had this beautiful thing where it kind of really diffused some of the instinctive tribalism I think people have because you got the sense of the the stakes and the the various forces acting on these people as prime ministers that it wasn't just as simple as I think people make out and I think that texture and the you know, I'm not saying that politics is is all noble by any means, but there was a sort of a nobility uh, toward the, the the act of governing that came came through in those threads, and and that I think had a real, uh, you know, certainly for me as a yeah uh, you know, listening kind of it just it crystallised a quite a beautiful thing about New Zealand politics, which does seem different.
1: It's a, it's really interesting that you raised that, and I was just thinking um, as you were framing that question that. If we were even to do that today, I mean, I I proudly tweeted all those out on Twitter. I don't think I could do that now.
0: Because of the, the oh, partisan audience yeah, reaction. Yeah.
1: I largely gave up Twitter after I did the Christopher Luxon profile on, on um, RNZ and I spent um, a couple of, you know, six weeks and did what I was quite proud of as an interesting profile on this guy who could be Prime Minister and is the leader of the opposition and I just got utterly smashed by morons on Twitter and I just thought this is just, uh, I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. Um, so I, I do get on it every now and again largely to promote my work and use it in that way but I don't engage with anyone but you're utterly right about that lack of partisanship you know like Jenny Shipley isn't an evil person who wanted to cut benefits she, she whether that was right or wrong you can test that through your own you know engagement with her but you know the BNZ crisis and and, and the Bolger government and all that you, you you know you you can assess that so if you treat and we tr- that was one bottom line we were going to treat them all the same and look at why they did what they did and give them the space to explain that and and the historical context and the forces that they were dealing with. And, um, yeah, I don't think we have an, uh, as many vehicles as, we, as, as we, I would like to be able to do that today. You, you also asked about whether the, we would do others, and I have wanted to do that, and we also had an idea that I'll put out here. I probably shouldn't, but um, of doing the seventh floor, which is the finance ministers, and got quite a long way ahead with it. But money and time, um, we we haven't started that. But again, you know, Douglas and Richardson and I should have got Cullen when he was alive. Um, but you know that that that's a project that I'd wanted to do, and you know, also sitting there now are Bill English and John Key and Jacinda Ardern. So. So hopefully, we can add some chapters to that in the in the years
0: ahead. Speaking very selfishly, I, I would love that. And um, finally, two projects which which feel both sort of personal to you, but also in some respects speak to you know. You always wonder. Allow me this digression. What are the things that are hiding in plain sight in your current era that future generations will look back on and go, what the hell were they up to with that? And there have been so many things about whether it's homosexual law reform or you know all kinds of various racist policies that we now are aghast at. And I feel like in these two documentaries, Proof and, and Wasted, you assess the, the relationship with our big legal drug that is you know so embedded in our society and and wasted the 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 sort of war on drugs uh you know, on the flip side as as being something which absolutely it, it doesn't feel morally defensible to, to these these two treatments and it doesn't seem like something that will abide forever because it just most of these things eventually get worn down by time and and fresh eyes. But yeah, so just tell me about those projects and and why you were drawn to them.
1: Well, you actually touched on it in that question, and it is something that I'm drawn to, things that hide in plain sight. There's a lovely phrase the Washington Press Corps has where they say, don't worry about what's illegal, look at what's legal, because that's the test that, society is going to accept and I think a lot of people go into investigative journalism thinking I'm going to find the corruption illegal thing happening over here I've been drawn in recent years to what we have in and what we accept legally I recently did uh, Lotto and had a look at at, at at how that works and how you can buy Lotto tickets as, as, a, as a child and how the whole
0: um, We just uh, did a like a fundraiser for, for, for a cyclone using and Lotto Without irony I, I saw that the other
1: day without irony and it doesn't matter you can't
0: tell people it's, It wasn't even particularly controversial no. Government saying hey buy some
1: No wow. and we spend 1.5 billion dollars on Lotto a year and we give 300 million dollars of that to charity and everyone thinks it's amazing it's like it's quite incredible to me so I I love unpicking stuff that are hiding in plain sight and the alcohol one is is one of those big ones that literally hides in plain sight and what I like doing with the alcohol argument is you take the um you know what the, what the most harmful drugs are in terms of science. And it's well known now that alcohol is at the top of the list by any respected scientist you'll name. Professor Nuts, the most famous one from 2010, British guy, people can Google that, they'll probably know who I'm talking about, who, who said that in terms of the damage to the user in society, alcohol is the most dangerous drug we have, and listed all the others. He got fired for it because he said um, alcohol was more dangerous than E, but of course it was. Um, so, you know... Um, if you swap out any of those drugs for alcohol, you, you get into an absurd situation where you, you've you got the the most dangerous drug sponsoring this kid's sports team and you've got the one at the bottom of the scale like the magic mushrooms, which you can go to jail for life for selling. So, you know... It doesn't make any rational or logical sense. Yet that argument that I've just espoused is seen to be a radical fringe argument. Oh, my God, he wants magic mushrooms to be consumed illegally. It's a freak, you know. But if you look at, if you look at it, the science of it, which we're all urged to do nowadays, follow the science, evidence-based, um, you know, that just simply does not stack up. And so it's quite good to just go, why do we think like that? What are the forces that have made us think like that? What are the cultural forces, the regulation, the advertising, the promotion, and all that stuff? So it really did draw me uh, to that—that um, alcohol—and then it seemed like the, the the next logical place to go was how we treat the other drugs, and so that's why we did uh, Wasted after doing Proof.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating topic, and 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 again, one which I think the media were very complicit and you talked about right at the start about the different styles of political columnists and there was all you know if anyone attempted to touch a subject like that uh, there would be this kind of default outrage whereas now I think because of our exposure to the world where there has been a lot more reform there is just a lot less of a um, you know I think that the electorate might be ahead of politics which is very rare on this one.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that might be true. Um, Politicians always seem to think that they're going to get uh, utterly smashed on this stuff, and then when it happens, um, you know, people just shrug their shoulders. A classic case was gay marriage. You know, Helen Clark had fought incredibly hard to get the civil unions through. John Key looked around at Obama, who'd done it in America, and went, "Oh, okay, Uh, we're on board with this." And suddenly, the conservative National Party was like for gay marriage, and everyone had thought, "Oh, they'll never do that," and then it was like, "Oh." This is, yeah, no, this is the way to go. <laughs>
0: totally. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's where the sort of, you know, politics and media, they, they interact and, and might be seen as kind of fixed and immovable. They're actually moving very, very quickly, and I think your work over the years has certainly kind of illuminated some of that. Thank you so much for coming on The Fold. It's been such a, a fascinating chat. Thank I've really
1: you. enjoyed uh, the chat, and thanks for the opportunity, Duncan. Appreciate it.
0: That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off.